Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Well, good afternoon. I'm William Lester, professor of chemistry and chair of the Hitchcock Professorship Committee. Uh, we're pleased, along with the Graduate Council, to present Professor Richard Thaler, this year's speaker in the Charles M. and Martha Hitchcock Lecture Series. As a condition of this bequest, we're obligated and happy to tell you how the endowment came to UC Berkeley. It's a story that exemplifies the many ways this campus is linked to the history of California and the Bay Area. Dr. Charles Hitchcock, a physician in the Army, came to San Francisco during the gold rush, where he opened a thriving practice. In 1885, Charles established a professorship here at Berkeley as an expression of his long-held interest in education. His daughter, Lily Hitchcock Coit, still treasured in San Francisco for her colorful personality, as well as her generosity, greatly expanded her father's original gift to establish a professorship at UC Berkeley, making it possible for us to present a series of lectures. The Hitchcock Fund has become one of the most cherished endowments of the University of California, recognizing the highest distinction of scholarly thought and achievement. Thank you, Lily and Charles, and now a few words about Professor Thaler. Richard Thaler is renowned for his influential contributions over the last three decades to the emerging field of behavioral economics. He is considered by many to be the pioneer in integrating psychological research with economic theory and the inventor of the field of behavioral economics. Thaler's studies also focus on behavioral finance and the psychology of decision-making. He explores the implications of loosening the standard economic assumption that everyone in the economy is rational and selfish, instead considering the possibility that some of the participants in the economy are sometimes human. Thaler received his BA from Case Western Reserve University in 1967 and his MA and PhD from the University of Rochester in 1970 and 74, respectively. Between 1974 and 1980, he held the positions of assistant professor at the Graduate School of Management of the University of Rochester and assistant professor of economics and public administration at the Graduate School of Business and Public Administration at Cornell University. From 1980 to 1988, he was professor of economics at Cornell's Johnson Graduate School of Management. He is currently the Robert P. Gwynn Professor of Behavioral Science and Economics, as well as Director of the Center for Decision Research at the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business, where he has held appointments since 1995. Thaler is also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, where he co-directs the Behavioral Economics Project. Professor Thaler has been awarded numerous honors for his extensive and illuminating work in behavioral economics. He is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and in 2009, he was elected a fellow of the American Finance Association and currently serves as vice president of the American Economics Association. Please join me in welcoming Professor Richard Thaler. Okay, well, first of all, I have some uh, good news to announce. The Giants won 3 nothing. So you can, you can go now. Um, so 
Uh, it's a great honor to be here. And so uh, I think I have more friends at this university than any other. And uh, I also have a daughter and daughter-in-law in the audience today. So uh, it's lots of fun uh, to be here. Let me start by talking about my so-called friend, Danny Kahneman, who some of you may know. He was a professor here, much beloved professor for many years before he um, ditched Berkeley and went to Princeton. And uh, Danny and I have been friends uh, since 1977. So once when I was out here for some reason, uh, and uh, we, Danny and I were doing some work at his home up in the hills, um, he, he had to get a phone call from some reporter who was writing a story about me, a profile. And so I was there. It was a little awkward. You know, we were both, Danny and I were worried about whether I would be, you know, embarrassed by the effusive praise that he would be heaping upon me. But we, we decided not to share with the reporter that I was in the room. And um, so uh, they're starting to talk, and, and then Danny says, well, really, the best thing about Thaler is that he's lazy. So I'm, you know, waving at him and writing him a note saying, you know, it, it's not the best thing, right? I mean, so he and I have been arguing about this ever since. Uh, but uh, the truth is that he's right. I don't know whether it's the best thing, but it's an accurate description. And uh, so, you know, I was a lazy man going into economics, and um, what was I to do? So uh, what's a good research method for a lazy guy? Uh, introspection. Now, you know, the scientific name for this is thought experiment. And uh, I've actually developed some very little known statistical methods for analyzing thought experiments. Um, I think I'm the only person that has those statistical packages. Um, so here's my first thought experiment. Uh, uh, when I was living in Rochester, a friend of mine were given two tickets to a basketball game. This is when Buffalo had a professional basketball team. There was a big blizzard, which was not a surprising event. And uh, we wisely decided not to go to the game. And um, he says, you know, it would be nuts to go to this game in this weather. But then he says, but if we had paid for those tickets, we would be going. <laughs> Now, this, of course, is a violation of economic theory uh, because in economics we teach thou shalt ignore sunk costs. Um, but we were going, so uh, it started me wondering why. Uh, but I, I discovered the hard way that you can't publish thought experiments. Uh, did the next best thing, which is ask other people to engage in thought experiments. So while I was working on my doctoral thesis, which was on the value of a human life, uh, I, it was, that was an econometrics exercise uh, where I was estimating how much you had to pay people to get them to take risky jobs. I thought it might be fun to ask them some questions. So I asked two questions. The first was, uh, we can modify it for this crowd, Suppose that by coming to this lecture, you have exposed yourself to a one in a thousand risk of death. 
If, if you have this disease, you're going to die a quick and painless death sometime next week. But I have one cure that I'm willing to sell to the highest bidder. How much will you pay? So you can think about your answer to that question. Then I asked the, another question. How much would you demand to expose yourself to that risk? Typical answers to those questions would be something like $1,000 and $1 million. But economic theory tells us that those answers should be approximately the same. So how can they differ by several orders of magnitude? So th this got me, got me thinking. I was told, that I was, this, ex this experiment was criticized on the grounds that it was hypothetical. I've been trying ever since to do it for, for, for like real, you know, I, I thought Russian roulette for money. Um, somehow I haven't gotten that past any uh, human subject committees. So this was stif career stifling. So uh, then, you know, I moved on to more advanced methods. In 1991-92, um, my friend Colin Kammerer, one of the first people to join me in this uh, behavioral economics venture. Uh, he and Danny and I were all spending a year in New York, and you live in New York, you spend a lot of time in cabs. So Colin and I used to talk to cab drivers a lot. And what they told us was that if they were having a particularly good day, they would quit and go home early. This is the opposite of what economic theory tells them they should do, because essentially what they're what they're doing is they're minimizing their earnings per hour by working less on the profitable days and more on the unprofitable days. Then, yeah, then I moved on to uh, playing poker with my colleagues. That was another data collection method. And what I noticed was that full professors of economics would be entirely different people depending on whether they were ahead or behind by some relatively small amount, like $50. So if they were ahead by $50, uh, there was no point in trying to bluff them. They would call any bet that didn't risk putting them behind. But if they were behind, they, they didn't like getting much further behind, but... Um, uh, they, they were willing to gamble if they could get back to even. So again, uh, it was hard to publish my poker predictions. And in any case, that would have deprived me of an important income source when I was a young professor. So um, all of this got, all of these observations, scientific observations, got me thinking about what I've called mental accounting which is how people think about everyday transactions. Why is it that they think that having paid for those tickets makes it seem more compelling that they should go to the game? Why uh, does the cab driver think it's a good idea to quit when they're making a lot of money? Uh, why do they treat opportunity costs different from out-of-pocket costs? And more important was how to convince any of my colleagues that any of these observations were remotely interesting or compelling. So essentially, today I'm going to tell you the story of how, 
how I began going beyond thought experiments. So uh, one method is to try real experiments. So here, here's an experiment that Danny Kahneman and Jack Kanetch and I ran. Uh, it was run actually in a, a class at Cornell uh, in law and economics. Uh, for the economists in the room, this is a class in which the Coase theorem was mentioned at least once every lecture. And um, so we handed out uh, Cornell coffee mugs to every other student and then created a market in these mugs. And if they had a mug, they could sell it. If they didn't have a mug, they could buy it. Now, since there was random assignment of mugs, the economic theory, and particularly the Coase theorem, suggests that it makes a, an, an, a kind of an unusual prediction for economics. It makes a prediction about volume. Normally, we have predictions about prices. We rarely have predictions about quantity. But this one predict, makes a prediction about volume. Specifically, it says that about half the mugs should trade. And the reason is, it, suppose you rank the, the students in this class based on how much they love a Cornell coffee mug. There, there were 44 students in this class. The 22 who like mugs most should end up owning them. And about 11 of them should have gotten a mug at random, so the other 11 should buy a mug. Well, that didn't happen. Instead of a volume of 11 trades, we would get a volume between one and four. The, the, the reason why we didn't get volume is the people who got mugs didn't want to part with them, and the people who didn't get a mug weren't that interested in buying one. Uh, I've called this the endowment effect. The idea is that once something is in your endowment, you don't want to give it up, but you wouldn't pay much to get it. Uh, the, the, this experiment was criticized, well, this is small stakes. So here's another experiment that was, this was an experiment I conducted to try to uh, test my observations at the poker table. And uh, this was done with real money. It, uh, it can be sometimes difficult to run experiments with real money where people can lose money, but we had an unusually intelligent uh, uh, human subjects committee at Cornell, so I was able to run these. So the first, first group of students are told, you've just won $30, truthfully. Now, would you like to flip a coin for, coin for $9? And the 70-30 means 70% 70 said yes. Another group are told, you just lost $30, bad, bad luck. Now, would you like to flip a coin for $9? If you're wondering what we did with these poor subjects who lost money, the, the experiment was designed in such a way that that was fairly unlikely to happen. And they were told that if they didn't want to pay, they could uh, go to the library and Xerox articles. Believe it or not, people used to go to libraries and Xerox articles, uh, if you can imagine such a thing, and we would pay them uh, for that activity. But anyway, you can see, after having lost money, they're not as interested in this coin flip. But if we say you've lost $30, now would you like $10 for sure or a one-third chance to get 30? Now they're back into gambling. 
because this gives them a chance to break even. Now, th this experiment illustrates two things. The first we've called the house money effect. This is a gambling term. If you go to a casino, you'll sometimes see people who win some money. They'll take the money they've won, they put it in one pocket. And they take the money they brought with them and they put it into another pocket. And the, the money they've won they re, is referred to as the house money. The casino is the house, and it's like that's somebody else's money. They don't mind losing that money, but they hate losing their own money. And the problem three illustrates what we've called the break-even effect, that people hate losing, but if they get a chance to get back to even, they'll gamble in order to take it. Now we have real money, real, real stakes, but people say, well, this is peanuts. This is small stakes. And now people have tried raising the stakes creatively by going to a poor country. So you can play games like this for the same amount of US dollars, but can be three months income. Uh, but uh, there's a, a, another way of raising the stakes, and uh, that's to use game shows. So some, I wrote a paper with three Greek colleagues using the game show Deal or No Deal. Now, if you've never seen the show, um, you're lucky. Uh, it's pretty much unwatchable. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll explain how it works. Um, so we had data from... Uh, the Dutch show, the U.S. show, and now I'm forgetting uh, a German show. The U.S. show was high stakes. You could win up to a million dollars. The Dutch show, the first prize was five million euros, which is about 50 billion dollars. <laughs> so, so here, here, here's, the way this, here's the way this game works. In, in the U.S. version, they had to sex the, ver, the U.S. version up. There, there are briefcases with various amounts of money. In the U.S. version, the stakes were a little lower, but it's the same idea. In the U.S. version, each briefcase is held on stage by a scantily clad model. And um, the, the, at the, the first step, the contestant, this guy's name is Frank, names six of the cases that he wants opened. Oh, no, I forgot an important step. First, he picks a case, and they bring it up on stage. That's his. Whatever amount of money is in there, it could be any of these amounts, is his. Now he opens six cases and the amounts are revealed, notice this tells him what isn't in his case. So he's got one of the remaining amounts of money. At this point, he's offered a choice, deal or no deal. The offer, in this case, you can see at the top, is 17,000 pounds, uh, sorry, euros. And uh, he can say deal or no deal. At the bottom, we, we've calculated and are showing you the expected value 
so uh, on average what he would get if he played this game a, a lot of times. And you can see that's 383,000 euros. So this is a very bad offer. And in fact, the offers always start out low and no one ever takes them. And that's designed to make the show watchable. So uh, you can see Frank was quite lucky in this first round. Uh, he didn't open any of the big briefcases. Uh, the US host frequently reminds guests that the strategy is to pick the briefcases with small amounts of money, <laughs> which uh, is undoubtedly the right strategy in this game. Uh, I think that's a game theory result. Uh, so, uh, but Frank's luck turns immediately. Uh, so on the second round, he opens up a bunch of really big numbers. You can see his ex expected value falls to 64,000 euros, and his offer falls. He says no. Uh, I'm going to go through the rest kind of quickly. You can watch how Frank does. Now, notice at this point, Frank has quite a risky portfolio, <laughs> right? Uh, he's got uh, one big number, one decent number, and three tiny numbers. Um, he's being offered 75% of expected value. That's a pretty good deal. In fact, we would expect him to take that deal, but he says no deal. Very unlucky. So he keeps playing. Now, at this point, he's offered more than expected value. So he's offered 6,000 euros for a 50% chance at 10,000. He says no. Okay, this is, it, it, there's a lot of things going on here. What, what, one of them is that the very big stakes that he started with sort of blind him to the fact that this is actually a high stakes bet. So any other day of Frank's life, if you walked up to him and said, would you like 6,000 euros for sure or a 50% chance at 10,000, he would say, thank you very much, and take the 6,000. But today, no. Now, let me show you. This is uh, some German Helga, I think. Uh, I'm not making that up, Ulrika. Uh, and now you can see the German show um, is uh, much smaller stakes. And, uh, but it works, the rules are just the same. Uh, Helen is quite lucky. And now this is the house money effect. Here we're offering her exactly an even money bet. And she says, fine, I'll gamble. And I watched about three or four of the US shows and then couldn't bear it anymore and hired a student to watch them and, <laughs> and re re record what happens. Uh, don't report that to the IRB. 
uh, but in one of the shows, I saw a scene kind of similar to this. And this was a first grade teacher who, the, the, the stakes were kind of similar to this in dollars. And um, she, said, she said, no deal. And, and the, uh, the host said, why? And she says, well, it's only $25,000. Now, that was six months income. And there is, again, no other context in which she would say it's only $25,000, uh, but she did here. Okay, so this was one way of us raising the stakes, and there's lots of boring, sophisticated econometrics in this paper if you're interested in reading it. And, uh, but essentially, we're, we're able to test a version of uh, prospect theory, which is a a theory of choice that Kahneman and Tversky came up with, and we get quite a bit of evidence supporting it. And remarkably, the, the behavior is very similar to what I observed in the poker game and what we observed in our low-stakes experiments. One of the results of mental accounting is that, so what explains this behavior about driving in the snow one way to describe it is to say that people don't like closing an account, a mental account, in the loss. And so they bought those tickets, and now if they throw them away, they're out that money. So um, again, this is small stakes, anecdotal. Can we raise the stakes somehow? So uh, your own Terry O'Dean, uh, uh, has run some experiments about, uh, sorry, a study on this with real investors. Here's the hypothetical experiment that you want to think about. Uh, suppose you need $30,000. You you're going to sell one of two stocks you own. One has gone up and one has gone down. Which one do you sell? Now, the rational choice is to sell the loser. And the reason is the government, our benevolent government, likes to share. And they share our gains and our losses. And if you look, dislike paying taxes, then you would rather share your losses with the government than your gains. But uh, that's not what people do. So uh, this is Terry's data. Um, and what he's looking at here is the in people's portfolios, what percentage of their winners do they sell and what percentage of the losers do they sell? And what you can see is that they sell 15% of the winners and 10% of the losers. Now, in December, when taxes get relevant, they get just barely rational. So uh, they sell slightly more losers than winners in that month, but the rest of the year. Uh, no. Now you might think, ah, they're being smart, and they realize that these losers are going to rebound. But in fact, that's not true. The stocks they sell do worse than the stocks they hold on to. Some additional evidence uh, with finance, with cabs. Actually, I think I took the finance out. Uh, with football and another game show. After our driving around experience, 
um, Colin and I went to some guy. I, it might have been Danny DeVito, um, who was the dispatcher for some uh, taxi cab company. And he, in New York, many of the taxi drivers fill out some sheet that records every fare. And so we got a big pile of these that we analyzed. And we did this with Linda Babcock and George Lowenstein. And what we found was some evidence to support this uh, intuition the cab drivers had shared with us um, that on days where in the first half of the day they were doing well, uh, first of all, we had evidence that that was a good predictor of earnings in the second half of the day, and second, that they were more likely to quit on those days. So you can think of it as a reason why you can never get a cab on a rainy day in New York is all the cab drivers have gone home because they've made so much money. So we declared victory. Then came along a very mean and evil guy called Hank Farber. Oh, bef before I get to Hank, who's actually quite a lovable guy, but uh, this, this result was only true for inexperienced drivers. So we divided our sample in, in half to the old ones and the young ones, just on a median split. And the older drivers had figured this out and uh, got it more or less right. The younger ones were making this mistake. So here's the quiz. Does this finding imply that cab drivers are less likely to show up on a day expected to be busy? Okay. The answer is no. Sur surprisingly enough, though, uh, one leading journal published a paper that shows that people who work in stadiums are more likely to show up on days like today when the ballpark is full than on days early in the season when there's nobody there. Now, this is not surprising or contradictory of anything we found. Cab drivers are more likely to show up on a day that's busy too. They're just more likely to quit early. So it might have been hard to find a beer vendor in the eighth inning today. Um, now we get to, uh, no, more, more evidence. I'm holding Hank in reserve. There's also a study by Ernst Fair and uh, his student, Lorenz Goethe, who find the same data for bike messengers in a field experiment they conducted. But now we get to the evil Hank Farber, who analyzes our data to death and gets the data to confess. Essentially, what he finds is that the, the evidence that the first half of the day predicts earnings in the second half of the day is too weak to draw our conclusion, which was very depressing. Uh, but to the rescue comes Vince Crawford and one of his students, J.J. Mang, who combine even fancier econometrics with even fancier theory provided by Berkeley's none other than uh, Botan Kosegi and Matthew Rabin and determine the truth. Now, if I could install a ban on any more papers on cab drivers, <laughs> I would like to do that right now.
but at least right now, uh, I don't know whether this paper is out yet, or it's forthcoming in 2010. I'm declaring victory, I'm moving on. <laughs> One of my colleagues somehow has not been convinced by all this. There was an article in the University of Chicago Magazine, a profile of me, and they went to talk to my Nobel laureate colleague, Gary Becker, uh, who's the chief defender of the rational economic model. And this was his comment. Base, I'll let you read it because I need a sip of water. He basic, the translation is, no need to pay any attention to Thaler. This doesn't matter. Presumably, cab drivers don't count. So we decided to turn to National Football League teams. Now, this, you would think, remember, he's claiming that the 10% of people who know what they're doing will end up in the important jobs. And presumably, you have to be really rich to own a football team. They cost about a billion dollars. I want one. If, if anyone here has that kind of money, come talk to me after, after the lecture. I, I want somebody to knock off Al Davis and then we'll buy the Raiders. And I'll prove to you in the next 10 minutes that we'll turn them into winners. So let's see whether owners of National Football League teams satisfy rationality, according to Becker. So what we do is we don't study the game itself. You don't need to know the difference between a quarterback and a linebacker, uh, which is good since my daughter's in the room and doesn't know the difference between a uh, quarterback and a linebacker, although her boyfriend is trying hard to explain the difference. Uh, every year in April, the teams have a draft where they pick so-called college players. They did attend some college. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm sure the ones at Cal are serious students. Um, and they pick players in order with the worst team picking first. Uh, there are seven rounds of this draft, and um, the players who are picked by a team are stuck with that team for a period of typically four or five years. Crucially for what we do, those picks can and are traded. And so what we study is the market for picks. And we want to know whether that market is efficient. So um, let me show you what that market looks like. This is a plot of all the trades of, this is all the trades just picks for picks. Sometimes teams will trade a player for a pick we can't analyze those in this way, so we only look at the data that are picks for picks. And um, we, we estimate a curve to fit that data, and if you've ever looked at real data, you know it doesn't look like this. This has an R-square that's embarrassingly high. And, um, I mean, it's 0.99. So at first, uh, th this is a paper done with one of my former students, Cade Massey, who's now at Yale. And um, we, we thought maybe we had discovered Newton's fourth law or, <laughs> or something like that. Uh, 
it turns out that wasn't the case. What, what we had discovered was uh, something that in the league they refer to as the chart. So uh, it, it turns out sometime in the 90s, the Dallas Cowboys had one of their, one of Jerry Jones' co-owners, an engineer, estimate that curve and uh, calculate just from past trades what picks were worth. And he fiddled around, it was nothing very sophisticated, and then since he was dealing with mere football owners, uh, he produced this chart, and what it, it's, I'm sure it's hard to read in the back, what it says is, uh, the very first pick up here is worth 3,000 points. The last pick, what they call Mr. Irrelevant, is worth not quite a point. And then the second pick is 2,600, 2,200, and so forth. Well, what we were estimating essentially is this chart. Because the chart has spread all around the league, and teams all have it, and now when they conduct trades, they're all looking at this chart. So, you know, if, if, you know, the Raiders, they always have one of these picks up here. So, uh, so Al Davis has the third pick. He's talking to the guy with the 12th pick about a trade. Uh, there's a difference of 1,000 points. So the guy with the 12th pick will have to come up with some number of picks that equals 1,000. And the, the, the picks, the trades follow this chart very, very closely. Now, what we're interested in is, is this chart right? In the sense that, is the first pick really worth three times as much as the 16th pick? Or is the first pick worth four of these picks down here? And our, our guess was the answer was no. That was our strong intuition. But as I told you, I've had trouble getting my intuitions published. So we collected some data. And uh, one aside, since the chart came out, so this is when the first chart was done, two things have happened. One is it's be become like more true in the sense that this is the, the variance away from the chart. And so at, it, at the beginning, only the Cowboys had this chart. But then a guy from the Cowboys would leave and go to the Niners, and he would take it with him, and it spread around the league. Now everyone has it. And so this curve here is plotting the, the deviation away from the chart, and this smooths it out. And what you can see is the chart starts to fit better and better as everyone starts to use it. What we conclude so far is that the market is values high picks very highly. Now, is, is that correct? So the next question we want to ask is, what do you have to pay these guys? Well, here's another chart. This is how much you have to pay picks as a function of draft order. And you can see these early picks are also really expensive. Now, you also see this curve also has a really good fit. There's, no, there's not a chart. Instead, the league, the league has a chart, essentially. 
because there's, I'm not going to go into detail here, but uh, there's something called a rookie salary cap. And the league is basically telling teams how much they can pay rookies, and it's this. And so players are pretty much slotted. The first guy makes more than the second guy, and so forth. So high picks are expensive in two ways. The picks are expensive and the players are expensive. Now, what that means is a team should only be willing to take a very high pick if they're really sure this guy is good. Now, if any of you are 49ers fans, um, you probably know a guy called uh, Alex Smith. Um, when was he drafted? Uh, anyway, uh, 2001? Okay. That year, the Niners had the first pick. They spent about six weeks trying to decide whether Alex Smith or Aaron Rodgers was the better quarterback. In the end, they went with Smith. Now, it's a very close call. It should have been. In fact, what, what we find is that the chance that the first quarterback taken is better than the second is about 52%. And that's true throughout the draft. Here's a plot of that. What this shows is consecutive players at some position, what's the chance the nth guy is better than the nth plus first? And it's a little higher in the first round, maybe 55, 56%, but then it gets to coin flips very quickly. So you should be worried about that chart. So here's the last step. What we do is we take and value players' performance, and we value them by how much you have to pay veterans. And so here's what you have to pay. This is what you have to pay veterans. Um, these are all pros, the best players. The blue line are quarterbacks, so quarterbacks get paid about twice as much as everybody else. The other players, there's not that much difference between positions. Um, defensive ends get paid a lot and left tackles get paid a lot. But essentially what we do is we, like, we take Alex Smith and we say in his first year, let's say he was a backup quarterback, that's worth three million. Second year, below average quarterback. Third year, fourth year, fifth year, below average quarterback. And we add those all up and we say, all right, that's what he was worth to the Niners. Here's what we get. What we find, first of all, this is what players are worth. Now you can see the, the, they know something. The teams know something. First picks are worth more than the, right? So value goes down with the draft, but not fast enough. These are the, if you subtract the uh, payment, this is surplus. So this is what the picks are worth to the players. And you can see, according to us, the best picks in the draft are at the beginning of the second round. Now, just to summarize, here's the curve we were trying to test of whether it's rational. Here's what we think is truth. It's not close. 
This is the biggest, I've done a lot of research in behavioral finance. This is much bigger mispricing than anything we've found. What this says is that you can trade the first pick for about five or six second round picks, each of which is worth more than that pick you gave up. So of course the Niners should have traded that pick. I was actually interviewed by a reporter around that time and asked if you were the Niners, what would you do? And I said I would put that pick on sale 20% off. Uh, they didn't do that. Uh, last comment about football, uh, various complaints about our methods. Here's a simple analysis we've conducted. Let's consider all the trades, one player for two players, see how they do. On two measures, number of all pro appearances and number of starts. This is what we get. We get, a technical term is dominance. You get just as many Pro Bowl players and the same number of, you get just as many Pro Bowl appearances, that's over here, but a lot more starts. So this is sort of a non-parametric test. Okay. Uh, one more game show. Uh, so this is a high stakes prisoner's dilemma. Uh, you know what, we, while we're messing with this, we're gonna listen. Okay. There's this a middle-aged man and a rather attractive money. young Your woman. Your jackpot today is 100,150 You have one final decision to make. Easy decision. We're now going to play split or steal. I know you're the last two people in the country I have to explain this to. But yeah, you have two final golden balls. You each have a golden ball with the word split written inside. You each have a golden ball with the word steal written inside. You will make a conscious choice of choosing the split or the steal ball. If you both choose the split ball, you split today's jackpot of 100,150 pounds and you go home with 50,075 pounds. If one of you splits and one of you steals, whoever chooses the steel ball will go home with 100,150 pounds. And the person who chooses the split ball goes home with nothing. If you both choose the steel ball, you go home with nothing. Okay. Before I ask you to choose, I want you to look at your two golden balls and make sure you know which is the split ball and which is the steel ball. This is very important. Make sure you don't show each other. All right, now they're looking at their balls and checking. Before I ask you to choose, I think you have some talking to do to each other. Stephen, I just hope they weren't puppy dog tears and they were real oh. tears and you were genuinely going to split that much. I am going to split this. I, I, that's 50,000. I'm, I'm just, un, it's unbelievable. I'm very, very happy to go on with 50,000. You were definitely going to split. If I stole off you, every single person there would run over here and lynch me. There was no way I could, I mean, everyone who knew me would just be disgusted if I stole them. When, when people watch this, they're, they're not going to believe it. 
I can look you in the eye and tell you I am going to split. I swear down to you, I am going to split. Okay. This is serious money. Okay. Now, uh, we're going to take a vote on what you think happens. Um, so, uh, right, there's two decisions, split or t steal. Uh, you couldn't see the faces, but probably doesn't matter that much. How many of you think that the guy will uh, split? Okay, how many think the gal will split? Slightly more, but about 50-50. Um, okay, here's what happens. It is. Sarah, Steve, choose either the split or the steel ball now. Hold it up. We're going on with 50 grand each, I promise you that. Split or steal? Oh. So he splits, he steals. You never know what's he going to in this game. He has his head like this. Congratulations. He's looking Sarah, you have uh, just won kind of 100,150 pounds. Stephen, I'm so sorry. Commit. Okay, so... Uh, and this is now the second in my all-star game series, show series of papers. And it's done with one of my Dutch friends from the previous paper. And so the first question is, uh, there have been literally thousands of papers written about the prisoner's dilemma. Uh, none with stakes this big. What happens if you raise the stakes to an average of um, $20,000? You get amazingly close to the behavior in laboratory experiments for a few dollars. About 45% of the participants split. So, which means um, half of that, about 20 some percent of people leave with money. Now, we study a bunch of things. I'm not going to go into detail because uh, we're kind of running out of time. Young men uh, steal more often, which means they are either rational or jerks. Uh, we can't distinguish between those. Um, there's a question of what happens with stake size. Um, so the answer is cooperation rates are quite a bit higher when the stakes are very low. Um, and here's my take on this, and it's my, the same take I gave you on the deal or no deal, that these stakes look low in the context of this game. And so they know that they could be playing for tens of thousands of pounds. If they are only paying for 200, they know it's peanuts, why not cooperate? Um, but once you get up to serious money, stakes isn't doing much. 
and we get you know about the uh, 40 45 percent um, yeah so that's what I just said um, another question you could ask so this game is on television does that matter and of course the answer must be yes but we're not quite sure how it matters in the deal or no deal, we actually ran an experiment with students at smaller stakes where we had some play the game in front of a big audience and some privately on a computer. And so we, it, it, it turns out, the, quite surprisingly, to, at least to me, the, the people in front of the audience did not take more risk. They took a little less. I would have predicted the other way around. But the difference wasn't huge. Um, so one thing we did here was we looked at whether people sort of had some reputational stake uh, in appearing to be honest. And we did this by just categorizing their occupations. And here's the result that reputation only mattered if the stakes were high. And otherwise it didn't. The next thing is, we were interested in, in, there's a bunch of previous rounds. There were four players originally, and uh, it seems like in all game shows you vote to kick people off. Um, there, there's also a lot of uh, what game theorists would call cheap talk in this game, where people announce they have some of these balls with amounts of money that are hidden, and they announce what they are. And what we were interested in is, if you lie about that, does that make you less trustworthy later? The answer is no. It seems that everybody, it, it's common knowledge that everybody lies, and everybody thinks that everybody lies. What often happens is, if a guy is dealt essentially a good hand, and he has the equivalent of an ace and a king, in his hidden balls, he will truthfully say what he has and say, see, I'm always going to tell you the truth. And then in the next round, we'll lie if it's convenient. So they all lie, and they all know they would lie. So this doesn't matter. Now, the, the last thing is you, one way of characterizing behavior in this game would be four types. The, the first would be, uh, I'll call Game Boys. Uh, they always defect. They learned that in their game theory class, and so they always defect. Then there could be nice guys, and they always cooperate. So they always split. The other ones steal. Third guys, I'll call them conditional tit-for-tatters. Uh, they will cooperate with someone who they expect to cooperate, and otherwise they won't. Now, then we have the deep tit-for-tatters. These are ones who realize, uh, the, the game theorists will know what I'm talking about, this is a weak prisoner's dilemma game. Um, and they, uh, they come up with the following deep realization. If the other person is going to cooperate, it doesn't matter. So they might as well cooperate. So they'll cooperate and if the other guy cooperates, great, they'll get half. 
if the other guy steals, they were not going to get anything anyway, and they might as well look good on TV. Now, notice A, B, and D are all invariant to everything else. So the, what we do is we investigate whether we can find any evidence for C. So is there any evidence that people take into consideration what they think the other player might do? And the evidence essentially is no. It turns out the only significant predictor of whether someone will cooperate is whether they explicitly promise to cooperate. In the clip I played you, he does and she doesn't. He says, I promise you I will cooperate. And then she says something like, if I didn't, everyone would think I'm a jerk and no one would speak to me. So if you had our data, you would predict that he would cooperate and she would steal, which in, that turns out to be right. Uh, there's no version of any model we could estimate in which they seemed to pay attention to any of those things. So I can't tell you what of the other things they're doing, but they don't seem to be doing this conditional cooperation. You know, the, the, uh, point one is uh, good economics requires sensible models of how real people behave. Uh, that's really the radical departure I had 30 years ago. You might worry or wonder, what does this say about public policy? But you have to come back tomorrow to find out. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.